as we continue the journey that we've been taking through the Gospel of Luke, we come to another major shift in the plot this morning. So if you remember back in the early part of Luke's Gospel, after the uh, birth story about Jesus, there's there's quite a few miracles that, uh, that take place. There's some teachings from Jesus. He calls his 12 uh, disciples to follow him. And then starting in uh, chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus began a journey toward Jerusalem. And the verse, uh, that verse says he, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, to be sure, he didn't make a a straight line there, right? I mean, his goal wasn't like your dad's goal in the car on family vacation. We got to make good time, right? We got to get there. That that wasn't. That's not the kind of journey that that we see from Jesus. But his face was set toward Jerusalem, in a sense that, that everything was leading up to Jerusalem. Nothing was going to stop him from arriving there. So that was 10 chapters ago. Today, we will examine Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. So we've finally made it, right? This journey that he started 10 chapters ago, we see him arrive in the city this morning. And and really from this point on in Luke's gospel, the pace slows way down. And, and what Luke does now is focuses on the final week of Jesus' life prior to his resurrection in the rest of his gospel. So these next, I think, seven weeks that we will spend in Luke's gospel is all focused on that one final week of Jesus' life. So if you remember from last week, um, in chapter 19, we heard Jesus give that summary statement for his life and his ministry. As he closed out his public ministry outside of Jerusalem, and as he prepared to enter the city, he he reminded those following him that he had come to seek and to save the lost. That's verse 10 of chapter 19, if you remember. He came to seek and save the lost. That was his overall purpose, his mission on this earth. Where we pick up the story today is going to be verse 28 of chapter 19. Now, in between those, in between verse 10 and 28, Jesus told a parable, and that parable was the, uh, the topic of the midweek devotional that I sent out uh, on Thursday, this, this previous week. Now, now, my initial reaction to that parable was that it, it was kind of in the way. It, it disrupted the flow of the story. It it seems to me like if you read verse 10 of chapter 19 and then jumped right into verse 28, the the flow would just be so much better. Now, it turns out Luke didn't ask me my opinion, so I don't know that that's really worth a whole lot, but but it's probably good that Luke didn't ask my opinion because uh, there really is something important to take from that parable. Jesus not only spoke about the fact that that he's going to depart from this earth and then he's going to finally come again to rule his kingdom here on earth in the flesh. But he also indicated in that parable that there would be people who would not respond positively to his identity as king. He, he made that very clear. Um, the, the, uh, there would end up being those who would set themselves up as enemies of Jesus, 
They, they would be his enemies, and they would be met with judgment. And, and it's, it's very strong wording in verse 27. Uh, it says that, that they'll be slaughtered. I mean, that, that, that paints a serious picture. Now, 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 back to me thinking that the flow would be better without this parable. I, I probably feel that way because I'd rather focus on Jesus' words in verse 10 about seeking and saving the lost than his righteous judgment upon those who reject him in, in verse 27. I probably just default to that and say, well, let, let's skip over the stuff that's not as comfortable to read and move, you know, move straight in. But the, the truth is that both verse 10 about seeking and saving the lost and verse 27 about slaughtering the enemies are needed. Both of those are needed. We need to recognize that Jesus does bring peace for those who accept him but he also brings righteous judgment for those who reject him. And, and that reality is what we're going to see played out this morning as Jesus arrives into Jerusalem. So, so if you've not already, I'd encourage you to turn with me to Luke chapter 19 in your Bibles. And as I said, we're going to pick up the story in verse 28. And I apologize that today is not Palm Sunday and we're reading the story anyway, but this is how it lies in the, in the account in, in Luke's gospel. So this is what we're doing. So verse 28 says, When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were, sent to, who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, now just a little context regarding regarding the geography, because I think it, it helps us as we, as we see Jesus' arrival here. Um, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem from the east. That would have been the common route for everyone who was traveling from Galilee in the north, kind of down into Jerusalem from the east side. So the story of Zacchaeus that we talked about last week took place in Jericho, which is roughly 14 miles from Jerusalem. Now that, that 14 mile journey, if you were to walk it, uh, they say it takes about eight or nine hours. And then that seems like kind of a slow pace, even for walking, to only go 14 miles in eight or nine hours. But there is, a, there is an elevation change of 3,000 feet from Jericho up to Jerusalem. So this is not Illinois walking that we're talking about. Okay, this is, you know, it's still a one day journey, but it's a, it's a journey. There's an elevation change that's pretty significant. As, as you travel from Jericho to Jerusalem, you, you go up over the Mount of Olives, which is actually a little bit higher than Jerusalem itself. Um, and on the Mount of Olives, you, you, come, uh, you come across a couple small towns, Bethpage and Bethany, which are, which are mentioned here. So, so Jesus is on that journey. He's left Jericho, where the story of Zacchaeus was, and he's journeying up to Jerusalem. And before he arrives at one of those two small towns, he tells his two disciples, go ahead, there's going to be a colt tied up in that town, and then untie that colt and bring it back here to me. Now, what Jesus is doing here is, 
is putting things in motion to make it unmistakably clear that he is the coming Messiah, that he is the Son of God, he is the King of the Jews. We, we read earlier this morning those two verses from Zechariah chapter 9, that those verses prophesy about the King of God's people entering Jerusalem on a colt, on a young donkey. Now, now the main thrust of that prophecy was that the king was coming and that he was bringing peace along with him. So chariots, war horses, battle bows, the, those verses say that those things are going to be cut off and, and peace will reign from sea to sea under his rule. And it's believed that that would have been a very well-known passage at the time. It's believed that that would have been interpreted as a sign regarding the future king of Israel. So, so in choosing to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus is making a very clear statement about his identity, which is kind of interesting when you really think about it, because Luke has previously recorded for us in his gospel five different times where Jesus told either demons or his disciples or someone that he healed to be quiet, right? I mean, you remember some of those? Something will happen and there's kind of some excitement building and Jesus, Jesus says, no, be quiet. Don't, don't go tell anyone. Be quiet about this. There, there's a couple times Jesus withdrew from the crowds as, as the excitement was growing. There's a couple times that Jesus changed the subject and began talking about his impending death. So it might seem kind of odd that Jesus all of a sudden is making this loud, public, very clear statement by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, and the question is, well, what has changed? Why go from keeping everything quiet to now all of a sudden this public display? And what has changed is that his time had now come. The time had come. It was, it was now time for Jesus' identity to be made known to all. And, and to ensure that the correct message was communicated, he rode into the city on a young donkey. It was an animal that conveyed peace and humility. It conveyed peace and humility rather than, than conquering victory and pride. So the peace which Jesus would bring, we know it wasn't a peace that was achieved by militarily defeating those who were ruling at the time, the Romans. Uh, we know that it was a peace that wasn't even primarily a peace in this fallen world across all of the fallen world right now. And we know that it was a peace that was between God and men. That is the peace that Jesus was bringing, that he would offer to all who would receive him. The question is how clear that was to everyone else. I mean, it was a clear picture that Jesus was bringing peace. I think there was still confusion about what that peace maybe was going to look like. But it is a clear and, and powerfully communicated fact by riding into town on a donkey that he is coming as the king who brings peace. There just would not have been any question about that. And, and, and listen to what the crowds said about, about him as, uh, as that unfolded. So verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the, on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And, and, and before we move on, before we look at what they were saying, 
I think we need to kind of recognize the, the different um, characters or different groups that are going to be showing up this morning. Um, and, it, and it really reminds me of a story um, or just reminds me of my experience uh, visiting uh, the Elkhart County Fair in Indiana where Megan grew up. Um, the Elkhart County Fair is a unique experience because Elkhart County itself is kind of a unique county here in Midwestern Illinois. Um, uh, there's really three main groups of people that make up Elkhart County. One is uh, kind of your, your rural country people who live in a farm or small town and honestly would just blend in perfectly here in Woodford County. I mean, you have that, that group of people. Um, another, another group of people is the Amish, and you've probably heard, I've told stories before, that, that there's a large Amish population in Elkhart County, Indiana. And, and then a, a third group is, is a, a large number of Hispanic immigrants or descendants of Hispanic immigrants. And the reason for that is, is because Elkhart County is kind of famously known to have lots of factories that make um, campers and RVs. And so there's a lot of Hispanic people who move there to work in those factories. And, and, and here, here's a statistic just to give you an idea. Um, I think this frames it really well. So, so the size of uh, the city of Goshen in Elkhart County is basically the same size as Pekin here in Illinois. Pekin High School is 3% Hispanic and 91% white. But Goshen High School in Elkhart County is 56% Hispanic and 37% white. Again, same size towns still in the Midwest. So it kind of gives you a picture of, of what Elkhart County is like. So you have that setting and then you think about the Elkhart County Fair. And, and that's what makes it such an interesting cultural experience because you really have all three of these groups of people coming together at this one event mixing together, intermingling together. Um, if you were to assume that everyone who entered the gates of the Elkhart County Fair was the same kind of person, you'd be drastically mistaken. Uh, you'd maybe be right about the Woodford County Fair, <laughs> but not the Elkhart County Fair. It, it, it's much different in that regard. So back to, back to just outside of Jerusalem. If, if we assume that everyone who enters the gates of Jerusalem for Passover was the same kind of person, We'd be, we'd be drastically mistaken. We just would be. And, and so really there's, there's four different groups of people that we're going to encounter in today's text. The first one we, we just read about in the last couple verses. These are the, this is the group traveling to Jerusalem with Jesus, a large group of Galilean Jews, people who lived uh, north of Judea in the region of the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus is from. And so many from that area had probably already heard personally um, what Jesus had done, or they'd seen him teach or seen him perform miracles. I mean, it, he, he was ministering in their neck of the woods, so they would have been pretty, uh, pretty familiar with him. And they traveled then. You know, they were all traveling here to, to Jerusalem for Passover. So, so this large group of followers were the ones spreading their cloaks on the ground. They were the ones shouting as Jesus crossed over the Mount of Olives and descended to Jerusalem. That group willingly and, and enthusiastically accepted Jesus as this Prince of Peace, okay? As he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, like we saw prophesied in Zechariah 9. So that's the group 
that's kind of at the focus here. Now, now listen to what they shouted in verse 38. It says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I mean, it kind of sounds like they get it, right? I mean, they're, they're accepting of Jesus. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that Jews commonly did on the way to Jerusalem was sing psalms. And, and so Psalm 118 has a line that says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what's interesting is that in order to fit the situation at hand here, they sang instead, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're singing kind of a common psalm, but yet tweaking it to fit the context with Jesus. They're freely proclaiming and admitting that Jesus is the king who is coming into Jerusalem. So, so this first group of people accepted Jesus as the rightful king. They accepted him as the one who brought peace with him, brought peace into his kingdom. But there's another group that was traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover as well, and, and they, were, they were more hesitant than this first group. So look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So the Pharisees, the first group we look at, is just kind of the common crowd of pilgrims coming into Jerusalem. The second group is the Pharisees. They've been regular characters in Luke's gospel, and, and they seem uncomfortable with what's taking place here. They're not enthusiastically on board like the larger crowd was. Um, they urge Jesus, quiet them down, rebuke them. You know, what, what's going on here? And, and of course, we, we realize the time has now come for Jesus' true identity to be made known. So he says, you know, no, even if they're quiet, the stones are going to cry out in their place. You know, just like Jesus was going to Jerusalem and nothing was going to be able to stop that, so his, his identity is now being proclaimed and nothing's going to be able to stop that. You can quiet this crowd of, of accepting Jews who are welcoming him as the king, but even if you do that, the stones are going to cry out. His identity will be proclaimed as he enters the city. So the Pharisees were uncomfortable with that, and I, I think I keep doing this because of my own tendency to misunderstand the Pharisees, but, but I think it's helpful, once again, to paint these guys in the correct light. Uh, Pharisees were people who held the law in the highest regard, and, and they did whatever they could to follow the letter of the law. And, and because of that, they were highly respected by people from Galilee. So the crowds, uh, the crowds traveling here would have respected these Pharisees greatly. Um, the Pharisees were the group of religious leaders that, honestly, Jesus had the most in common with. I know we see them clashing quite a bit in the Gospels, but Jesus had the most in common with the Pharisees. They had the most points of agreement together in, in their teaching and in their understanding of the Bible. Not completely, obviously, but they had the most. And so while the Pharisees from Galilee have had their clashes with Jesus, what we're going to see is they're not the ones who Luke shows to be the main opponents of Jesus during this last week. Um, uh, we'll get to that group eventually, but this is actually the last time that the Pharisees are going to be mentioned in Luke's gospel. 
This is the last thing that we're going to hear from them. And so when it came to the reception of Jesus, this king of the Jews who brought peace, the Pharisees traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover struggled with their acceptance of him in that role. They, they wavered in their response. And Luke doesn't even really tell us how they end up finally responding. As I said, this is the last that we're going to hear from them specifically. So it's, it's entirely possible and, and maybe even probable that, that the Pharisees by and large do end up rejecting Jesus. I, I think that's probably what happened but it's not shown here to be a foregone conclusion. We're just not given that specific detail. And, and I think in that uncertainty, there's a good challenge for us. Um, maybe you've had your clashes with Jesus in the past. Maybe you've had some skepticism that has made it tough to receive Jesus, has, has caused you to waver some. Your final response to Jesus is not a foregone conclusion either. Um, just like the Pharisees in this story had opportunity to join in with the crowd and accept Jesus and praise him, uh, so do you. I mean, Jesus' purpose to seek and save the lost remains unchanged. So you can accept him for who he is. You can find that peace that he brings, that, that only he can bring. I mean, we talked, uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about the Pharisee that stood in the temple, had that self-righteous attitude before God. I mean, uh, that Pharisee assumed that God would accept him based on his merit. Um, a Pharisee or anyone else who, who, who has that type of attitude and who rejects Jesus um, is going to miss out on his peace. But likewise, a, a Pharisee or anyone else who receives Jesus as the king and who puts their trust in what he would soon accomplish on the cross will be brought into God's kingdom and, and will experience the peace that, that comes with that. So there's, there's a, an open door there, if you wanna call it that. And the question is, how will you and I respond? How will we respond to Jesus? Will we respond like the crowd that was accepting, that sang his praises? Or will we respond like the other groups that we're going to move on and see? Because again, we're not told exactly how the Pharisees ultimately responded, uh, but we are given more clarity regarding some other groups. So look with me here at verse 41 as we continue on. It says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So my fandom for the Cardinals baseball team and the Rams football team goes way back. It goes way back to when I was a little kid and uh, the company that my dad worked for would, uh, would give us occasional tickets for Cardinals games and Rams games. So that's where it all started. It goes back that far. 
Well, one of the things that I always remember about those trips to St. Louis as a young boy was the anticipation of seeing the Gateway Arch. Right? I mean, uh, th that, that three-hour trip for a young boy eager to get to the game always seemed like it took forever. It was just too long. But I always knew that as soon as I saw that arch on the horizon, we were close. We were close. And upon seeing that, that shiny arch, whatever excitement level I had previously just ramped up. I mean, it, we were almost there. You could see it. And, and so there was, and, and I think in some ways still is today when I travel to St. Louis, an emotional response elicited by that arch. It might sound kind of crazy, but like I said, it goes way back to when I was a little kid. And I think a similar thing is happening here with Jesus. He'd been traveling to Jerusalem for quite some time. Um, the last 14-mile stretch, he'd gone through the Judean wilderness. He'd gone into the Judean mountains that no doubt had been a challenging journey. And then finally, as he nears the end of the journey, he, he comes to the Mount of Olives and he, he crests the Mount of Olives and catches for the first time on that journey a glimpse of the city of Jerusalem. And he has an emotional response when that happens. Now, now my response with that arch is one of excitement. But here we see with Jesus, his response at seeing Jerusalem was was one of sadness. I mean, he wept. And the reason he wept when he saw the city is, is he knew what awaited it. He knew what the final outcome was going to be. You know, even though, we gotta catch the irony here. The word, the name Jerusalem has the word peace in the name. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. I mean, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I mean, peace is in the name of the city. And yet Jesus knew that though the Prince of Peace was coming into this city of peace, that peace would not be found by the people there. That because they were going to reject him, there would not be peace, at least not then. And so what Jesus is doing is presumably he's looking 35 years down the road and weeping about the eventual siege and destruction of the city at the hands of the Roman, uh, the Romans. In the year 70 AD, they, they demolished the city of Jerusalem. And, and so he, he looks ahead to that and he realizes that the people of the city are going to reject him and they're going to face terrible consequences as a result of that. And, and, and maybe we can relate in some ways to that. Maybe we've had to watch a, a family member or a friend make a decision that we were, we were pretty sure would lead to pain and suffering, that it wasn't going to lead to peace. And, and, and we can feel sadness knowing that, that there's a better way, a way that's marked by peace rather than suffering. I, mean, I think Jesus is in that kind of a place. He is the king who brings peace to those who accept him, but he does not force himself on us. He, he wasn't going to force himself on the people of the city, those who would reject him. And, and so as a result, he wept because he knew that they would reject him. He knew that in the near future, in an attempt to find peace, they would rebel against Rome and it would lead to their destruction. It's crazy how it all goes back to peace. They rejected the king 
They rejected the Prince of Peace, and then later on, decades later, when they were trying to find peace, they rebelled and they were, they were destroyed by the Romans. But it wasn't just the city as a whole who rejected Jesus. There's a final group, the religious leaders, who will reject Jesus as well. So look at verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Now, Luke's account of Jesus clearing the temple is by far the shortest. You know, when we think about that story and the details that we know, they don't come from Luke. <laughs> they come from the other gospel writers. So this is a very short account. Now, we know from the other accounts that, that this was taking place in the outer courtyard of the temple, that it, it had been transformed into a marketplace where pilgrims were you know, traveling from all over the world could acquire the animals needed for sacrifice. They could uh, exchange money for the proper currency to pay the temple tax. And, and, and even though that was all done for religious purposes, right? I mean, this was a religious festival. Uh, we shouldn't think for a second that those merchants that were, that were doing all of that were, were just doing it out of goodwill. <laughs> I mean, they, they were making a buck on, on what was taking place. And it wasn't, wouldn't have just been the merchants. It would have been the religious leaders as well who allowed them to do that in the outer courtyards of the temple. I mean, that area of the temple was set aside for the Gentiles of the world to come and worship God and pray to him. And it was turned into a bustling marketplace that was driven by greed. And, and that's what Jesus is pointing out here. That's why he's flipping the tables and, and driving the merchants out. Uh, as Jesus said, it wasn't a house of prayer anymore. It was a den of robbers. It had been transformed into that. And so when Jesus does that, when he drives out the merchants and flips over the tables, he does it so that it can be a house of prayer once again. But the chief priests, the scribes, the other leaders of the people were not happy with that display. Not at all. See, not only was Jesus disrupting commerce, but he was drawing people to himself, right? I mean, remember the, the crowds that are traveling from Galilee into Jerusalem. I mean, the city is bursting at the seams. There's lots of people receiving Jesus, and these religious leaders are worried that, that the wrath of Rome is going to come down upon not just Jesus, but upon them. I mean, that's what they're really worried about here. So what do these religious leaders do? Well, they, they seek to destroy Jesus. They reject him, and they try to find a way to destroy him. And in many ways, they, they, they led the rejection of Jesus and caused the city to, to follow in their footsteps. So it's quite the picture that we get as Jesus arrives into town. The Prince of Peace arrived during that Passover season. And I know it was 2,000 years ago, but, but he was met with both acceptance and rejection. We can see both of that taking place. 
Some found peace in him, others would go on to find judgment from him because of their rejection. And even though that was 2,000 years ago, have things really changed today? Can't our world be described in the same way that some accept Jesus and find the peace that he brings, but others reject Jesus and are setting themselves up for judgment? 2,000 years have elapsed, but, but it's much the same situation, same context. So the question is, what about you? What, what about me? Will we accept or reject the king who brings peace? And, and, and we may or may not recognize it or verbalize it this way, but what every person truly desires is peace. That, deep down, that's what we all desire. Whether our context is, is, a, is a world or, or a marketplace or a family or a neighborhood or a school that is marked by turmoil and animosity and stress, we truly desire peace above everything else. It's what we long for. If we could just experience peace, then things would be so much better. And so we pursue it, don't we? I mean, we, we pursue peace. We look for peace. And, and at times we look for it in, in money or in accomplishments or in relationships or substances or fame or power. But if we're honest, we never find it there, do we? We never find at least the lasting peace that we truly desire. We don't find it in those things. You know, the religious leaders, the people of Jerusalem, they rejected Jesus but continued to pursue peace and as I said, that's what ended up with them being demolished by the Romans when they rebelled against them. We're not going to find peace in this world under our own efforts. We just won't. It's only when we accept Jesus and only when we submit ourselves to him that we're giving, given true and lasting peace. And, and, you know, the context surrounding us might remain unchanged. You know, our, our receiving peace in Jesus doesn't mean that everything around us, that the problems are all solved according to how we might like to see them solved, but, but the peace is promised. And just to give a, a few passages, Psalm 29, 11, it promises that the Lord blesses his people with peace. John 16, Jesus said that in him we will have peace. In John 14, Jesus promised that even though he would depart, his peace would remain. Uh, when Paul was praying for the church in Rome, he prayed that they would be filled with peace as they trusted in God. Um, Galatians 5 states that one of the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Uh, it, we're promised that. We're promised that in Jesus. He is the, <clears throat> the king who brings peace. And so I I can't urge us strongly enough this morning to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Um, I, can't, I can't make anyone choose that. Uh, there's times I wish I could, but I can't. I can't make anyone choose peace. All I can do is, is point you to that king who rode into Jerusalem on that Sunday and promised peace. I can point you to him and, and, and confidently say that, that if you accept him and open yourself to him, that you will find that peace that you're looking for, that true lasting peace that I think everybody is looking for. We find it 
in that man who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey those 2,000 years ago. So that story is going to continue to unfold over the last week of Jesus' life. There's going to be more conflict that we see, and there's going to be moments of peace as well that we're going to see. So I just encourage you to kind of keep your eyes open for that as we continue on in Luke's gospel. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's conclude by, by praying to God and then worshiping him yet again as the one who brings peace. Jesus, we give you praise um, that you are the king and that you are the king of peace. Thank you for this story that we can read that uh, just so clearly displays that. It was, it was unmistakable what you were proclaiming upon your entrance into Jerusalem on that Passover. I pray that you would, you'd be speaking into our, our hearts and minds. There's, there's so much in this world that promises peace. But we also know that uh, it's always going to leave us empty, leave us lacking. It's not going to deliver on what it promised. And so, God, I pray that we might rest in you, knowing that you are the one that truly brings peace. And, God, I, I praise you ahead of time. I thank you for your promises in that. Um, may, we, may we all rest in those promises. God, I thank you that you love us enough to offer yourself to us as we continue this journey through the gospel that ultimately ends with your crucifixion and your resurrection. We're so thankful for that. We, we know that the peace you give to us was not cheap, that it cost you your life. And so we're grateful and we're humble that you would still go through with that to give us what we desire. God, as we worship you now, would you, would you draw us closer to yourself? Would you reveal yourself to us in a deeper way this morning? We give you the praise, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.